Hello and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. How's it going, everybody? Hello, hello. Hello. How you doing, Lukey? I am great, Miss Mead. How are you? <laughs> Cardian. <laughs> uh, uh, today, as promised, we will be exploring with our hands covering our eyes <laughs> operating theaters. Ooh. As you I said, said you were a theater historian. I didn't know it was this kind uh, of theater. I, d- uh. I never could have predicted this for myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I said in the anatomy theater episode, the operating theater is pretty much the next level. <laughs> uh, warning to all, this is rough. <laughs> it really is. Uh, I personally, and I'm not kidding around, I almost passed out while I was doing some of this research. Oh, God. <laughs> I was reading an account of an amputation and I'm I'm actually not going to share it with all of you because they they really are some of them are so bad it's just it's unbearable so I'm not going to do that to all of you if Thank you really want to know what an 1832 amputation involved you are more than welcome to look it up on your own but I'm I mean not... some people some people are operating heavy machinery while they're listening to this we don't uh, yeah I can't it. do that to anybody so yeah it almost it literally almost took me out I had to go I had to take <laughs> off my headphones I had to sit on the bed I had to like <gasps> Oh, someone get her a bag. Uh, yeah, I needed a bag really badly. <laughs> the things we do for this podcast. You're okay? all welcome, by the way. <laughs> but yes, please forgive me for what I'm about to share with you. I, I've made it as soft as I can without, you know, holding too much back. Although Luke really did help create a a buffer between us just talking about body parts to a disgusting accident last week with Phineas Gage. So I feel like he's been a good, Phineas is a good bridge. <laughs> well, I feel like I dove into that without warning. At least you're putting a disclaimer in front of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure who passed out last week, but at least I'm <laughs> letting back. everybody know this time. The term operating theater or surgical theater is still used to describe the operating room. It's sort of an affectionate term. That continues to be used today. So in researching this, it was actually really hard <laughs> because every time you type in operating theater, you're either getting, you know, some new state of the art virtual operating room website or you're getting like oldest theaters that are still operating today, like <laughs> oldest movie theater. Oldest. <laughs> so I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is going to take me forever. <laughs> So yeah, not an easy subject to research for for numerous reasons. <laughs> not the easiest to Google, it turns out. No, 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 no. So good luck to anyone who wants to look into this more. Uh, I did not have a great time. <laughs> but I think for many pop culture nerds, two of the biggest references, modern references that we have for operating theaters are the Junior Mint episode from Seinfeld, <laughs> which Luke referenced. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which is highly unrealistic, by the way. <clears throat> I um, should hope so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just letting those fucking maniacs go into that room. <laughs> not at all prepared to be in a hygienic environment. No, and no one would survive Eating candy. No. Yeah. Although, if you really want to, Luke, I highly recommend you do a research on the uh, Junior Mint subreddit. It's full of surgeons and doctors theorizing what actually would happen. Oh, if cool. you dropped a junior mint inside someone. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Some of them feel like he, you would actually get incredibly ill in, with infection, but other people yeah. are like, the amount of antibiotics we're giving you after surgery, it probably would kill any possibility of infection, but it also depends on where it lands. So it was actually really interesting. The cool mint actually an, as an antiseptic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what someone actually wrote. 
<laughs> a non-doctor. Obviously. Oh, that's great. I love that. So there's that reference, but I think a, a more uh, realistic reference is the show The Nick, which was on in 2014-2015. Beloved. And Luke, you were you a fan? Did you watch? Huge fan. So every episode. You were. Okay. So so was so was my husband Jay. I it's a man show. Turned on the first episode and I got to the first surgery and was like, oh, gotta go. <laughs> You know, and I don't know what is with me, but I think it's the same morbidity we talked about in episode one and every episode yeah. since. Like, I, I watched Nip Tuck all the way through, could not watch the surgery scenes. I would watch the surgery scenes through my fingers. Mm. The Nick, the same thing. It's even grosser. It's oh, cruder. So gross. It's yeah. hyper-realistic. It's freaky. And you're right. Within the first few scenes, there's maybe the first scene, there's a ridiculous surgery that you see. Isn't it a C-section or something? I can't remember, but it's hella bloody and icky. And the patient dies, yeah, right? It's so it's just, also just, just setting you up for, a honestly, a really good portrayal of that was very common. Early 20th century medicine. Yeah, yeah. And the Nick takes place, I think, in like 1900. Correct. So we're going much further back with our history today because by 1900, a lot of, even though the Nick is as brutal as it is, imagine that it was worse <laughs> In the right. operating theater before the Nick. <laughs> right. So in the 1900, we're only, we're a few centuries after barbers were surgeons, whereas you're going back to when the barbers were still in charge. Oh, I'm going to talk all about <laughs> our barber surgeon friends. Oh, for sure. That's coming up today. But uh, the show, for those that don't know, it's called The Nick because it's based on the actual hospital that once was in New York called the Knickerbocker. And it follows this character, John, Dr. John Thackeray who's played by the ever delicious Clive Owen. Beautiful. He's so phenomenal in it. I think he won an Emmy or something for season one. Yeah, the little bit I watched, it seemed fantastic, but I don't. Yeah, I, don't I think it's Steven Soderbergh produced. It was. It, and, it was very cinematic. And I learned actually, so it only lasted two seasons. And mm. I learned that his long-term plan with the Nick was that it was going to be the Knickerbocker hospital over time. So the next two seasons were supposed to be like post-World War II. Whoa. And then it was supposed to be like modern day. Really? Hospital. Yeah. But it never, nothing ever happened. There are some rumors, because I obviously researched this a bunch in mm -hmm. researching this episode, that there may be future treatment. If Steven Soderbergh can get his shit together and make it yeah. happen, I don't know. The doctor, the doctor's back in. Okay, the doctor great. might be back in, um, but not Clive Owen, obviously. So yeah, he's based on a real doctor. Uh, whose name was William Stewart Halstead, who was a part of a few different hospitals in New York, including Bellevue and Roosevelt Hospital, which is now uh, Mount Sinai. And right. he made a lot of breakthroughs, including he was one of the first people to do a blood transfusion. He experimented with a lot of different anesthetics, which I think they portray pretty well on the show from what I've heard. Uh, he was mm -hmm. a pretty bad cocaine addict <laughs> that came from, and this was very common at the time too, doctors were experimenting on themselves to figure yes. out what was going to work. And so he became a coke addict, which then to try to treat his coke addiction because everybody thought, well, if you've got addiction to something, let's try something else. And then, of course, he became a morphine addict. Yes, yes. It's like up the, up, up the nose or between the toes, <laughs> however it goes. And real quick, let me go do some surgery. Yeah, I'm high as hell. I'm high as fuck. I'm going to scrub in. Something that made me laugh really hard that I learned about him too is he created the first residency program 
which makes sense because if you know what a medical residency program is like, it seems like it was created by a coke. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Those hours make no sense. Yeah. Exactly. That's true. So here's the idea. You're going to just walk up and down this hallway a million times and check out every room. <laughs> oh my God. I love that theory. It's really <laughs> It's great. So let's get into the operating theater itself. But yeah, I thought I'd give that little background for anybody who's maybe interested in seeing this. Mm -hmm. I'm not that guy. I, I really want to be. I really want to watch the show, but I, I just can't. So I invite anybody else to take a look if they're interested. So operating theaters first begin to pop up in like the late 1700s, early 1800s. And physically, they are modeled, of course, on their cousins, the anatomy theater. Hmm. Uh, as we previously established in our anatomy episode, medical schools are on the rise at this point, And there is a big shift happening throughout the world in terms of surgery. The history of surgery is absolutely fascinating, but it is obviously epic because it begins at the beginning of humankind. We've been <laughs> cutting into ourselves and having to deal with boo-boos and everything since the first time we took a breath. Time immemorial. Time immemorial. Yes. yes, it is a long and, might I add, a complex topic because different countries developed their techniques and things at different times. Some things got lost during different, you know, falls of empires and rises <laughs> of new empires. There's also some racism in there because Africa may have figured out something at one point, but the English were like, ew, no, I don't want to do it the way that they do it. Nah, we're superior. Yeah, a lot of eugenics in the Nick. <laughs> oh, yes. No, it's mm -hmm. a big part of the, and actually the Knickerbocker was known for, the Knickerbocker and many of these hospitals we're talking about, pretty much all these hospitals that we're talking about, are exist for the poor. And so even though the right. Knickerbocker was created to treat immigrant populations, they still wouldn't treat black people, which is a huge, apparently, Luke, it's a huge plot point on the show, from what I heard. It is. Yeah. There, there's a character who's a, a doctor of color, and he, you see everything through his lens. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah, man. Maybe Social I can, history is very good. You got to get a super cut. I know. Maybe I need to just, like, do a... <laughs> Hands, hands over my eyes, wear earplugs, and tell Jay to tell me when I can open my eyes again. You might. That's what we did when we were watching uh, House of Dragon when they had the horrible birth scenes. Ugh. Yeah, I was. I covered my ears and I was like, "Just pinch me when it's time to look." <laughs> I'm a baby. <laughs> At least you have a partner to get you through it. It helps. It really does. So yeah. So. It's very hard to boil this down succinctly in terms of the history of surgery, but I'll try to quickly summarize a little bit of what we're dealing with by the time we get to operating theaters. Based on my research, it seems that the most common surgical procedures, really pre-Renaissance, would have consisted of things like bloodletting, a fan favorite, always yes. a big one, yes. whether it be cutting a vein or popping on a leech. <laughs> So not rhinoplasties, got it. Not rhinoplasties, no, no, not, <laughs> not nip-tuck yet. This is documented, this was really fun to research actually, because I didn't understand how long some of these things have been done. Bloodletting is documented going as far back as the Mesopotamians. I had okay. no idea, because okay. I always thought this was a, 
a Hippocratic thing that this was Hippocrates, but he's the mm. one who connected bloodletting with balancing your humors. Whereas with the Mesopotamians, they looked at this as <laughs> evidently in ancient prehistoric times, they believed that you had demons inside right. of you that you had to release via bloodletting. Mm. And apparently I read if to be a really good physician, you had to know at least like all of the six thousand demons that could be potentially living inside the human body and causing illness. So this is like, if your blood is tainted, we let out some of that blood. We've excised some of the demon. Yeah. Versus the, the humorous thing where we're trying to balance your blood, your bile, you know, mm. all that stuff. So it's a diff it's same thing, same procedure. So yeah. Still probably <laughs> potentially going to kill you <laughs> and not help you at all. Uh, but yeah, hmm. it's it's one of the craziest things that went on for Far too forever. Long. And of course, they believed that illness was from gods because that was everybody thought everything was because of gods. That's psychological game. Yeah. yeah. And then Luke, you, of course, drilled into our heads the art ah! of trepanation. <laughs> so gross. And you know what? I think you had mentioned in the episode that it goes back to medieval times. Uh-uh, my friend. First recorded one comes from Egypt around 8,000 BC. Fact check. Are you kidding Every, me? Everything I know is wrong. <laughs> everything. I mean, I was blown away when I found that. I had no idea. And again, <laughs> as if you It guys... makes sense. The Egyptians were good with dissecting and Very medically else. proficient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like Luke had discussed, uh, this is essentially the removal of the skull, whether it's drilling a hole or literally chipping away, which is so horrible. Sounds worse. Um, yeah. And the idea that it could cure anything from chronic headaches to psychosis. Uh, and certainly when we look at things like lobotomies, where that's it considered more of a mental illness treatment, but also mm -hmm. epilepsy and things like that. So it's so funny that Phineas Gage's suggested treatment would probably also be <laughs> to drill a hole in his head. Yeah, it's it's all related. I know. Trepanning by a different name. Yeah, another cool little thing that I found was apparently out of 120 skulls that were found at a burial site in France that dates back to like 6500 mm. BC, 40 of 120 had trepanation holes. Whoa. Isn't that wild? So, so this is widespread. And there seems to be proof that in all of these findings that they're mature enough that these people probably had like possibly a 50% survival rate. So way higher than you would think walking around with a fucking hole in your head. <laughs> but not quite the same, probably. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Greg's a little grumpy now. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe some people are more tolerable after, you know. I don't know. But yeah, other things, obviously, there's there's evidence of amputation going back 31,000 years in Borneo, but for no, sure thanks. it's been no, going thanks. on far longer than that. Uh, documented history of the Aztecs setting bones, India, the first cataract surgeries in 600 BC. It's so God, bad. No. God, no. <laughs> they used to do cupping, which is exactly what it sounds like to remove cataracts from the eye. <laughs> Hate that. Hate it too. Hate it a lot. Yeah. And of course, then that doesn't even get into the category of the various ways to heal cuts and wounds from things like using bugs to eat away at dying flesh or pouring boiling oil to cauterize a wound. Very common. 
yeah. big in the Napoleonic Wars, I think, actually. Because um, a lot of this stuff, well, that's the thing. A lot of these surgical methods are born out of the need to immediately treat because of battle. Right, you're being blown apart on the field. How do we save you? Yeah, so most surgery generally is happening on the battlefield because your average person isn't going to just casually elect to have surgery because it's so barbaric. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, again, needless to say, this is a vast history in terms of how long certain procedures have existed and how they vary depending on the location. But all in all, it's bad. It's all really bad. <laughs> Um, and there is some knowledge of anesthetic, again, depending on the culture and the location. A great example of that is, you know, milk of the poppy, a.k.a. opium, we know has, oh, my God, millennia. In, certainly in Eastern cultures, they've, they've always used it for some kind of pain management. But that being said, you know, it's, it's not considered a main part of surgery. And it can only do so much. It's just you're the foreplay. You're still fucking awake. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so real surgical pain management doesn't actually exist until the mid-1800s. And then, of course, I didn't even talk about the lack of antisepsis and the fact that there is just... And again, this can vary from culture to culture. Some cultures were absolutely ahead of the curve in terms of cleanliness, mm -hmm. but we're focusing on Western Europe and who boy, <laughs> hygiene was not stick, a thing. Stick your finger there. Yeah, just wiggle it around a few times. See what you find. <sighs> yeah, so our focus is, is Europe and America, mostly London and the United States today. Okay. So when we're when I'm bashing. All right. <laughs> we're getting a focus here. We're getting a focus. This yeah. is good. Narrowing in. So we are doing these painful, unclean, and very limited surgical treatments. Because if the patients are awake, you can only do so much, right? Yeah. So who are these surgeons? Who, who is doing this? Who because again, they? we were talking about how medical school hasn't really existed until recently. We're talking Correct. about the Renaissance, right? So what? So who were they? And again, depending on the time period and the culture, often early on, you're talking about priests, you know, some kind of a healer if it's more of a tribal mm. culture. In the case of England, it would be monks. And they did a lot of that balancing humors mm. and a lot of the, quote unquote, minor <laughs> surgical procedures like amputation sure, <laughs> and, sure. and bloodletting. But if you remember, I talked about the papal bull that made <laughs> dissection. I love talking about bull. It's the third bull. I've I'm heard just okay. <laughs> I'm just talking so much bull. Super um, bull. That it that was the one that limited uh, dissection of bodies, but also it made it so that members of the clergy actually could not do medical procedures. I like I, this it must have been like something involving like you can't take a life in your hands like that, you know? Because technically, if I'm going to do an amputation or bloodletting. I'm doing something that potentially kills someone and I right. I can't be part of that. And you can give the last rights because you're right there, but <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, who is going to fill in for these monks? Because mm. simultaneously in the middle ages, physicians didn't do the surgeries because they were like, fuck that. That's manual labor. I'm here being a scientist and I want to learn about how to treat illness and I'm studying and I'm teaching and I don't have time for your fucking bloodletting bullshit. 
Get I'm at the Fertile Crest. I'm at the Fertile Crescent Golf Course right now. Um, <laughs> can you page page my receptionist? <laughs> Amazing. But essentially, their feeling was, "I'm too smart for this." Correct. Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm a scholar. I don't have. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not doing this bullshit. And it makes me think of my favorite medical show of all time, which was Scrubs. <laughs> yes. Sure. Now they always kind of compare the surgeons to the jocks. And the yes. and the in, internists to nerds, and I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of this plays into that perfectly. I like that. Um, yeah, and honestly, it is manual labor. The effort to saw off a limb. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, for real. So yeah, I get it. I'd pawn that shit off on someone else too. <laughs> so thus begins the rise of the barber surgeon. Yes. So so Luke obviously knows what a barber surgeon is, but for those of you who maybe are not hip to this ridiculous period in history <laughs> where, you could, where you could go to a store and get a haircut, your tooth pulled, and your hand amputated. <laughs> Can you imagine? They'd be like, um, so how much you want up? One finger, two fingers? Um, like, I'm, just, doing it. I'm doing a two for four today. Just how quick it could descend. Like, you know, I want it like last time. Oh, my God. Why are you cutting off my arm? Um, <laughs> so great. Yeah. So they are first recognized in actually about like 1000 A.D., and that is, again, part of that, like, papal bull stuff. They've been studying with monks, essentially. They have no medical training at all, no, no medical education. They're learning about the treatments initially through these monks and then eventually through apprenticeships with other barbers. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're being trained to cut hair and beards, and then you slowly build your way up to the more horrible tasks of pulling teeth and amputating, bloodletting, removing boils, every kind of nasty fucking thing you could imagine. So this dirty job was offloaded on a sect of the workforce that just probably had really good chairs. Like- <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually what I what I learned that I didn't realize before was, you know, they again, they mainly existed to be helping soldiers on the battlefield during mm. wartime. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, in the off season, <laughs> in peacetime, they could open private practices and, and build up a business back back in London. It's too, too weird. It's so bizarre. I know. I know. So, oh, and Luke, fun mm. little trivia. I know you know this, but for our listeners, if you didn't know before, the red and white stripes on the barber pole, uh, that represents the blood and bandages of the barber surgeon. So, yeah. You'll never look at that again the same way. (laughs) And uh, sometimes here in the United States, they're actually also blue. They're red, white, and blue. And it's said that that might be, there's two theories. One, it's the patriotism of America. Or two, that the blue actually represents uh, the vein that you would show the barber to have your blood let. The blood that is still within. (laughs) Yeah, which is super gross. And the pole... That represents the literal pole that you have been given to hold to help, you know, the way that you would with a tourniquet kind of pop the vein that you were going to have. I know Luke is making so many faces at me. My eyes are going to bug out of my sockets. Or to literally hold because you're about to have your fucking leg cut off. Right. So you have something to clamp onto. Clamping, clenching. Oh, yeah. 
So mm-hmm. fun. Such a great time. Luckily for everyone everywhere, as surgeries become more complex, this led to academic surgery as a specialty of medicine and the idea of an uneducated layperson being this type of triple threat <laughs> becomes less attainable and desirable. And it actually in England, it becomes straight up like illegal as right. they, they dissolve the uh, alliance between barbers and surgeons in, uh, I think it's like uh, 1745-ish. And so b- going to a barber for these purposes f- fades out from that point on. Fades out. I like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, mute. I'm muted. Just cancel me. <laughs> Keep talking. I'm not doing anything to help you. I'm, I'm having a great time. So... Now we are creating real surgeons, and they are being trained in universities where students are supposed to attend lectures in surgery. So it becomes customary for any new state-of-the-art medical school to have its own operating theater. And they are, of course, modeled after the anatomical theaters, but with some important differences. One, Mm. of course, being that the patient is alive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Although the odds are that may not last very long. <laughs> Bets are being taken. In which case then, you know, depending on who the body belongs to, you might then have a great anatomy lesson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so anyway, another huge difference between the two is that it just it just doesn't sound like as much fun. <laughs> it sounds really bad from what I could find in my research. It really was primarily for doctors and students. Mm. And it really wasn't as much about the fun, <laughs> you know, we we likened it to what, like pre-gaming and like sitting in like the nosebleeds at a baseball game. Like is it from everything that I read? And again, like I, I can only research so much. There isn't really talk of this being particularly popular with the general public. And you know, it could be that maybe a doctor brings along a curious friend and that's how like more of a lay person is in there. Sure. And actually the family members were allowed to come. And in some cases where it was a charity situation, they actually had to go. They didn't have a choice, which is horrible. I know. Imagine. Thanks. But yeah, so I, I also don't get the impression that you're paying money to come the same way that you would with the anatomical theater. I mean, the students obviously are paying to go to the university and, and, Early on, the way that medical school worked is you were like, I I mean, a little similar today. You are paying per class. Mm. So they were paying for the lecture Mm because this is ultimately, yes, the surgery is happening, but a lecture is happening simultaneously. They are telling you what's going on at the same time. But yeah, it's it's just not that fun, I don't think. It's a a very different deal. High stakes. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's not a theatrical sort of no. thrust to it. And this and isn't just a cold body on a slab, right? right? I mean, on the exciting side of it, you're watching science being born. Yes. Innovation is happening right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And there were people, they would go specifically to see certain doctors who were working towards perfecting a specific technique yeah. or something like that. And so it was like, I'm going to now be able to change my whole study of medicine because I was able to attend this surgery and watch this guy do his thing. Um, But it is also a lot of trial and error. So there is this expectation that you're probably going to watch someone die today. So traumatic. And it's so painful, especially early on before there's anesthetic. You're watching someone in agonizing, horrendous pain. It's so gory and terrible. It's really rough. And, And actually, now I'll go into kind of what it's like to be in the theater. Yeah. Obviously, this early on, it's stif. It can be stiflingly hot. 
no good ventilation situation, Sim- okay. similar with our some of our anatomical theaters. And, you know, that's really all you need to know to understand without getting into anything else. This is going to be a very unhygienic environment, not <laughs> ideal for surgery. <laughs> okay. As we know, today's operating rooms, which are often, like I said, still called surgical theaters or operating theaters, are incredibly sterile environments. Great pains are taken to make them so, and people can still get infections. Mm-hmm. That's how scary germs are. <laughs> yeah. But in these early operating theaters in the 19th century, you have surgeons who are unmasked, ungloved, and unwashed. Yep. They wore their street clothes, and they proudly wore the same apron over and over again. The more blood and grossness it had on it, the more of a experienced surgeon you were. So it kind sure. of was almost like wearing a badge of honor. Completely disgusting. Yep. Uh, you would use the same instruments on different people, simply wiping them off maybe on a cloth or your apron. So really just getting the blood off, not cleaning it at all. Now they got that from the barbers, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Very well, that be true. And they didn't even bother washing their hands until after the surgery, and that was literally just to remove the blood from their hands. And patients also aren't prepped. There's nothing Mm. on them that's cleaning the area to help prevent infection. There's just no awareness of this stuff. It's germ city. There's no sanitary practices. In fact, washing hands wasn't quote unquote discovered as a means to reduce infection until like 1847. So, I mean, we are living the life in pre-germ theory, still miasma all the way microbe city absolutely so it's still bad air you know that's your problem don't worry about my dirty hands (laughs) all up inside you Mm -hmm. um so yeah this is and this is overlaps obviously with the with the cholera epidemics and you know some of that stuff that's yet to come with john snow so then you know in addition to already this lack of hygiene you're adding a bunch of people into the room Breathing. Yeah, there's there's these people who are viewing the surgery. And if you've recalled the world that we've discussed, the 19th century world we've talked about previously, these people are gross. Their shoes are covered in human and animal waste. Their clothes are <laughs> filthy. They are smoking in the fucking theater. I was going to say, pass me that cigar. There are reports of literally the, the floors in some of these hospitals being soaked in old tobacco juice from spitting, spitting on the fucking floor of an operating room, okay? Yeah, this is just it's just fantastic. Uh, yeah, probably waltzing Ugh. in there with tuberculosis and God knows what else. <laughs> goddamn, if only we had a blue light yeah, in there. <laughs> goddamn Petri just. I don't even want to know. Ugh. Oh, and uh, also to add to sort of the atmosphere, there's a ton of sawdust on the floor. So, you know, the surgeon isn't <laughs> slipping around. <laughs> Soaks up all the tobacco juice really nice. Yeah, yeah. Mostly the blood, but yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a terrible place. It's nowhere I want to fucking be. <laughs> and you're saying there's not a lot of evidence you could find in terms of first-person accounts of these spaces that were worthy. All of the first-person accounts that I've read were from doctors. Okay. Who were watching, and renowned surgeons also. Yeah. So people really like enjoying watching other people practice their craft, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And these surgeons were like 
rock stars. They would walk in there and there would be huge applause. There'd be mm. huge applause when the surgery was completed. One person, one account I read, they compared a surgeon to a matador confronting a bull in the way that the theatricality of it. And some of them really played into it. I love that. Yeah. One of the most famous surgeons that gets talked about a lot was a Scottish surgeon named Robert Liston. Mm -hmm. And he famously would operate with the knife gripped between his teeth. So he had free use of his hands. So you could grab it again really quickly, which oh, is dear. Disgusting. Oh, dear. How many of his patients lived? None. Yeah. How much saliva <laughs> went into your patient? Like, yeah, it's perfect. It's great. But if I'm on the slab and like my doctor walks out in his crickets, I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's when you should be worried. Help! If there's massive applause, like, oh, thank I'm God. I'm good. Oh, thank good? God. Yeah. And the thing is, they were not focused on doing a great job. They were focused on doing a fast job. So speed above all else is the greatest concern because they're, again, they're not thinking about anything that I'm doing could be causing infections. Yes. What I'm doing is causing massive blood loss and I don't want the patient to go into shock. So that's mm -hmm. their main concern. I need to keep this person awake and I need to control the blood as much as I can. So they thought speed was key. Detective speed. <laughs> for real. <laughs> and so, yeah, they'd be like, they'd start, they'd begin a surgery. They'd explain what was going to happen in the room today. And then they'd be like, time me. And they'd start. And it was like, it got, I can't even imagine how stressful that room 90 was. seconds. Yeah. Nurse. Yeah, I know. So it's like, yeah, it is super theatrical. So the mm -hmm. name, again, the name works in two different ways for sure. Yeah. And it should be noted in this time, by the way, surgery was always a last resort. This isn't like me contemplating getting, you know, the, my deviated septum <laughs> fixed. Sure. This is like, if we don't do this, you will definitely die. If we yeah. do this, you might live. So, you know, you decide. You're all out of options. Yeah. Yeah. Because of how severely horrible surgery was. And we're talking about stuff like gangrene. Like you're, you have an injury and your leg has become gangrenous and, and you will die horribly. Or mm. we can try to take this leg off and save mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Or you're pregnant and things are going bad. We got to cut you open. It's the yeah. only way to save you and the baby. Or you're both going to die. And right. either way, you both might die. Correct. But like, are, we got to take the chance. So, you know, it's terrible. Absolutely terrible. And the patients are already in a weakened state. So surviving surgery is not an easy thing to do. Um, so yeah, to some extent, speed is more important at this time. Because, I mean, Jesus Christ, these guys could get amputations done in under a minute. It's incredible. Just fast hands with that saw. It's it's wild. I know. And it's... And it's I read a lot on how they work and I really I don't want to tell you because it's it's very bad but there's multiple steps to an amputation that are just each one is worse than the last so if you are interested you can google that really easily but sure. um but yeah fast surgery and good surgery aren't necessarily the same thing so yeah better things to come down the road and getting to the patients these poor people oh my god if you were wealthy enough, you wouldn't even be having surgery in a hospital. You'd be paying a doctor to come to your house and do this stuff for you. Right. So um, uh, that was another thing. A lot of these doctors were going to these things because they weren't working in a hospital. They were working private practice and they want to know how to be able to do this in, 
you know, a home setting, if you will. Babies were almost never born in the hospital also. If a baby's gotten to the point where it's at the hospital, it's there's an extreme emergency. Do you know um, who the first president was who was born in a hospital? Who was the first president born in a hospital? Jimmy Carter. No fucking way. Isn't that yeah. crazy? Hospitals were dirty. Hospitals are lot. still dirty, but they're a yeah. lot less dirty than they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, birthing for centuries was an at-home thing. Hospital births are much more of a 20th century. Hospital use for the masses is a 20th century thing. Like it really was for the poorest of the poor, people who really had no other option and couldn't afford a doctor. A lot of these hospitals are, you know, for charity cases, essentially. And so, yeah, if you're there to get treated and they're like, listen, this is complex. I got to take you to the operating theater. What are you going to say? No. Sorry. I can't go there. It's for yeah. the peeps. For yeah. the drigs. There are 250 people waiting to watch you. You ready? That's what I can't get over is the psychological obstacle course of getting surgery, but then knowing that there's 100 eyes looking at you. Some of these theaters, I, I forget which one it was, but one of them held up to 700 people. I hate that. I hate it too. It's that's it's, like a that's like a galactic senate fucking looking. It's, at it's, it's so many people, and apparently, uh, in some of these theaters, it, I don't know if this was the case for all of them, but you would get offered a blindfold to maybe help ease. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. I would. I would be more like staring into someone's eyes, being like, "You like this? <laughs> <laughs> Sitting there doing nothing." <laughs> Are you entertained? Are you not entertained? Yeah, this is like Gladiator. This is this is the Coliseum of of surgery. Next level, yeah, for real. So, um, I don't I don't even really like when I'm like at the doctor and he's like, "Hey, I have an intern here." <laughs> Get them out of here. Get them out. I I hate it. I hate it. I hate it because I'm looking at them. I usually say yes because, yeah, it's it's important for them to learn. I get it. But if he was like, hey, real quick, I have 700 people here. (laughs) Especially like it's always at the gynecologist, by the way. Yeah. Tell your sexual history. No. God damn you. I don't want to. Yeah. And it's always when your legs are already in the air. But they're like, (laughs) do you mind if this person comes in? You're like, like, well, mystery's over now. <laughs> Are you smoking? <laughs> Do you mind? Can you at least give me a cigarette for fuck's sake? We're trying to live here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, part of your wonderful experience as a patient in the operating theater is you would have generally somewhere around like four dressers, which were the doctor's assistants, holding you down. Oh. Because you may be the the most stoic person on earth, Mm. but once someone starts to hurt you, they could tell you to sit still and you can't. You just can't. It's involuntary. When when your body is being hurt, you're going to react accordingly. You're trying to run away from the knife. Yeah, it's just going to happen. And so you're strapped down and or held down as well by Mm -hmm. human beings. So what a horrible fucking gig that is, by the way. Yeah, restraint. Horrible. I had to hold down my daughter's hand when she was getting an IV placed when she was like one Mm. and change. 
and I almost passed out because I couldn't handle I couldn't handle her screaming. And and I don't think that was just me as like her mommy. I think I couldn't I couldn't do that to any child. I couldn't I couldn't do it. Right. It was brutal. It was it's really, really hard to like force someone to be in pain like that. It's, I can't restrain my cats to cut their claws. Uh, horrible. <laughs> I'm horrible. <laughs> I have no stomach for this. So not the same. <laughs> They make it sound more dramatic. They are so they're all they're all drama queens. Cats are the worst with that. So yeah, it's it's not a pleasant experience at all. And you know, by this time, there are things like tourniquets. So there are things that can help reduce the loss of blood. Hooray. (laughs) Tourniquet also the last resort for the most part. I mean, there's they're doing that right off the bat before they amputate you, they're placing the tourniquet. Yeah, and then in the Pennsylvania hospital in Philadelphia, which is one of the most famous operating theaters, their catchphrase was rum, laudanum, or mallet. Those were your three choices <laughs> for pain relief. As into the head? Yep. Just knock you out? And to we me, should I'm do- like, laudanum, laudanum all day. Why would I do anything else? <laughs> that is the classiest drug to get into in the 19th century. Laudanum. Oh. Thousand percent. Every housewife. <laughs> this is like the new improved rock, paper, scissors. I love this. Yeah. It's yeah, rock, paper, scissors from hell. <laughs> yeah. Horrible. Woof. Yeah. No, it's rough. So yeah. You choose laudanum, right? You wouldn't choose a thousand percent. Yeah, no. I mean, Take you the wild west. Mallet. I would not choose mallet. I would absolutely no, I don't like pain. And I like my face you know yeah and like i like my face and i might need my brain again if i happen to survive this horrible surgery (laughs) correct i'll be concussed so yeah anatomical theaters come off real fucking chill compared to this because of course you're you're screaming the room is full of screaming and you know maybe there's something you can bite on that that Mm -hmm. helps to you know quiet the screaming a little bit but i can't imagine the terror I certainly can't imagine it being done to me, let alone like watching it, which does also seem crazy because this isn't the Coliseum. You aren't that far away in most of these places. No, Again, if it's seating like 100 to 200 people, you're fucking right there. Well, and you want to see everything to learn a technique. You need to, yes. right? So that they're, they're designed so that you can see. And one of the most common things you would hear in the theater, besides the patient screaming and the crazy surgeon going, time me, you would hear people going, heads, as in, could you move your head? Oh. <laughs> heads. That heads. is so nervy. Some dude is screaming and you're like, heads, down in front. <laughs> Ugh. I know. That's so gross. You got to see. You got to be able to see. Uh, here's a quote. From a spectator at the old operating theater in London. Yeah. Yeah. This is from a book that he eventually would help create called The Memorials of the Craft of Surgery. I was always very anxious to see all I could and soon got over the bloodshedding, which necessarily ensued. And so long as the patient did not make much noise, I got on very well. But if the cries were great, and especially if they came from a child, I was quickly upset. Had to leave the theater and not infrequently fainted. The heat had probably something to do with this failing, for the theater was invariably crammed to excess and the atmosphere most stifling. And this man was Dr. John Flint South. He was a fucking surgeon. Mm. So if a fucking surgeon can't do this, 
how do I stand a chance? Is there a difference between watching it and doing it? Like you, you're holding the, you're holding it. So you're, you have to be present as yeah, opposed to. Yeah, maybe it's an to... endorphins thing also where it's like, I, this person is relying on me. Yes. They, it, their blood will literally be on my hands. So you, I you can kind of compartmentalize it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe also like if it's a surgery you're seeing for the first time, I think it's really common in med school to have like your moment of like feeling weak need. I, anybody I know who's gone through med school, they definitely yes. have their story. Reaching your threshold. Absolutely. Yeah, it's hard. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, at the end of the day, you are human and it is going to take time to desensitize yourself, but this particular atmosphere is next level. But it's, you're right. It's often like the first time I saw X. Yes. In inferring it was not the last. And yeah. you just build up that resistance to it. Exactly. Exactly. But thank the Lord, more and more by the middle of the 19th century, we are starting to see the birth of the anesthetic in the surgical suite. Oh. Thank God. 1847, I mentioned, um, it was kind of a big year. There was the use of nitrous oxide aka mm. laughing gas, mm -hmm. uh, chloroform, ether, and even as we already talked about, a little cocaine, a little nose candy. Absolutely. <laughs> By the way, that's cocaine being injected, not snorted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah. Is that freebasing? Is that what that is when you're straight up shooting <laughs> it into your veins? I forget. I think, I think, I think right. that's what that is. I don't know. I don't know drug things. <laughs> no. It's all from the wire. I don't, I know do, I don't do drugs. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so our bay, Jon Snow, who, if you don't remember him, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, I talked about him in our London Stinks episode. Yes. He was an obstetrician and also uh, anesthetist, I believe, I, is what you would call right. him at the time. And he popularizes obstetric anesthesia by chloroforming Queen Victoria for the birth of two of her kiddos. Amazing. Isn't that incredible? This guy yeah. had a front row seat to a lot of history. Oh, I mean, he was in three cool arenas in that he was figuring <laughs> out <laughs> germs. He was figuring out solving child mortality problems. Yeah, I mean, really, he was he was a winner. It's a shame he died so young. Yeah. But yeah, so an an anesthetic is a fucking game changer because now surgery can expand in a way it really never could before because the patient can only take so much pain. Mm -hmm. You know? Now, of course, <laughs> these could all be very high risk because too much, you're dead. <laughs> too little, you're not getting knocked out. Right. And again, we're on a clock here, so we got to keep things moving. So you may still have to undergo this procedure without an anesthetic, which mm -hmm. is terrible. And it, the cocaine thing is a great example of a lot of people overdosing mm -hmm. very easily. And people in the medical profession who were experimenting with it, many of them OD'd. Right. It, it was a huge issue. <laughs> and I think I even mentioned there is some suspicion that perhaps Jon Snow died because of his work with anesthetics. He died of a stroke, but um, there are some people I, who... Yeah, that could have been born it from drugs. Been, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm. So, uh, yeah, not a, not a safe practice at all. Mm. And, you know, there's no way to monitor the way that we have today. It's not regulated. No, we don't have an anesthesiologist in the room at this time who's literally checking your vitals and making sure you're good, seeing, oh, maybe we can turn it up a little bit, add a little bit more. Oh, she's good. We don't need any more. There's nothing like that going on. So it's like, what? Rag over the face. Good night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, it didn't work. Hmm, interesting. Who's next? Oh, oh she's dead. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least she's not in pain. 
<laughs> At least she didn't suffer. Yeah. So while effective in some cases, still not ideal. And of course, none of this helps with the infection, which is no. ultimately what's going to kill most people if they survive, if they survive the surgery. Correct. Um, so the consequence of anesthetic meant surgeons were able to try more invasive surgeries, which then means much higher rate of infection. Because now you're deeper. really getting into the organs, which means, you know, sepsis, essentially. Yeah, the <laughs> finger goes deeper. <laughs> it's not great. Oh, God. So it isn't until the unbelievable British surgeon scientist, John Lister, who is the father of modern surgery, Lister as in Listerine, in case anyone's exactly. wondering. Yep. He makes the connection between Louis Pasteur's work on germ theory and connects it to infection in humans post-surgery that any real talk of sterilizing wounds and instruments comes into play. He starts this work around 1864, and he's using carbolic acid as a way to disinfect mm. wounds and instruments. So he creates the foundations of antiseptic surgery as we even understand it today. He's an incredibly important figure uh, in medical history. And it is why mouthwash is named after him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sterilize that dirty mouth. Um, I also learned that Listeria is named after him for this reason, but he had nothing to do with its discovery. So it's almost rude. Like, I don't yeah. want to be fucking named after this. It's not nice. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. Like naming, COVID after, like naming COVID after Fauci. Like, excuse me. <laughs> I don't want. Get out of here. I know. Poor Lou Gehrig. That's, real, oh. that's stuck to him forever. What the fuck? <laughs> Tragedy of disease names. It's terrible. So this leads to further measures put in place to make the operating theater uh, aseptic, mm. which means the environment is then also being sterilized. And that really is the best way to prevent infection. We know that now, obviously. So doctors are now washing hands. They're wearing gloves. They're wearing gowns. They're covering their shoes. The environment is being cleaned. And we do see more of that on a show like The Nick because they've kind of gotten over this hurdle of people fighting about it. And yeah. actually, Halstead pushed sanitation hard at the hospitals. Like he really had to fight for it. So I don't know if they talk about it with John Thackeray at all on the show, but it is a, a big part of his his narrative in terms of his like legacy is is concerned with sterilizing environments. And he actually is the first one to use rubber gloves mm. in surgery. And uh, funnily enough, it's because actually the antiseptics were so were causing so much irritation to one of his nurses that he had her like wear gloves. But then they were like, huh, the infections aren't as bad. Maybe we should be doing this generally. This works and, for all of us. And I think he, it, there's even a quote from him somewhere that basically reads as if he's like, how come we didn't think of this before? It's really mm. obvious. Yeah. I can't remember those moments exactly, but in the show, often Clive Owen's character, Thackeray, is on the right side of history. And at, watching it in the 21st century, you're like, oh my God, this guy. He is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, he, and he was. Halstead was at the time. So the environment is now being cleaned. And back then, also, you had things in the theater like stuff like there would always be like an articulated skeleton in the room and this practice actually ends because of this new effort to sanitize because they could collect dust they could collect germs so yeah those bony bitches got kicked right out of the yeah, door ended up in john's studio in a couple of exactly decades. <laughs> yeah and again like a lot of this understanding of germ theory this is all because of our babe john snow you know, mm. there's a lot. He really kicked everything off. Thank, thank the Lord for that, man. Um, 
But even though a lot of these breakthroughs are beginning as early as 1864 with Lister, it really takes decades for this to be taken seriously throughout the world. It's it's yeah. slow to come to the United States, um, which has a huge impact on the history of America, which we'll be getting into in February, Luke. Wink, wink, wink. You know yes. what I'm talking about. I, I guess. Can I say something? No. <laughs> <laughs> no I just want people okay. to... I just want people to stew in that and think about what that might mean. You think about that. and what You just think about that. Yes. So what ultimately ends the operating theater as we know it during this time period? Initially, once patients were unconscious, it actually becomes a little less morbid and less exciting. <laughs> mm. So I think less of like the randos wanting to come and watch, that kind of fades out. It loses some of its gross, morbid appeal. For That's maniacs nice. who would want to watch that. So there's no screaming, no suffering person. And now the surgery can actually slow down quite a bit. The doctors aren't rushing the way they Got once did. Absolutely. Which means surgery is more meticulous and they understand that that is better. Mm -hmm. That a slow, precise surgery will also help prevent infection versus mm -hmm. a rush job. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because we can, we can do that now. No one's yeah. squirming underneath us. Right. Thank God for that, for anesthesia. But it doesn't make for a very exciting performance. Um, and a slow surgery doesn't make for an exciting performance. So it's not these quick and dirty procedures anymore. It's these lengthy, drawn-out, quiet less fun uh, maybe at some point they said you can't smoke anymore that probably wasn't until the 60s <laughs> so it's less of an adrenaline rush yeah it's more of learning know, now it's a, a learning environment. step by step absolutely yeah there's always going to be the possibility of death of course i mean that that's part of the nick too is even though they have anesthetic at that point and it is a cleaner environment it still doesn't mean it's safe no. There's still a little bit of like that adrenaline kick. And if everybody's on cocaine anyway, who cares? <laughs> That's the other thing. That's why they're going so fast. They're all coked out. That's exactly right. <laughs> but really the final nail in the coffin of the operating theater uh, is that surgeons and hospitals finally begin to really all agree that maybe having a bunch of people in this room isn't the best thing for sanitation. <laughs> Yes. Can't make the environment that sterile with all no. these street folk rolling gotta, in here. <laughs> gotta eliminate some variables somewhere. Yeah. So by really 1917, they're pretty much obsolete. Interesting year. Isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, at least here in the States, yeah, that, yeah. as far as I understand it. So, and these operating theaters are now transforming into operating suites because apparently at the turn of the century hospitals are also changing a lot a lot of them are being rebuilt we talked about this a little bit before luke where yep. you, you may see a hospitals established in like 1750 or whatever but yeah. it's never in the original location or the original building isn't there so there's big shifts that happen at this time too again a lot of this is because of the innovations that are being made so yeah. the theaters are turned into operating suites mm. that are smaller. <laughs> you can have obviously students in there, but it's not going to be fucking 700 people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so they're building them with safety rather than uh, spectator in mind. Right. But that hasn't stopped people from wanting to watch surgery. We know full well 
people still want to tune in and watch that shit all the time. We talked about that with the anatomy theaters of people enjoying watching surgery online. A lot of hospitals do allow virtual experiences. A lot of students learn that way too. You can like tune in virtually to watch surgery now. And surgery itself has progressed insanely. I mean, and all the time, I mean, there are are robotic surgeries now where exactly. the surgeon doesn't have to be in the fucking room. Yeah. You want to talk about sterile. I Amazing. mean, really? Yeah. I, I mean, lasers, that also scares yeah. me. If you told me that a robot and only a robot was going to be in the room with me doing my surgery, I would be like, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. And I have an emotional support animal. I don't want C-3PO up in my grill. Okay. No. Screw you. <laughs> Some operating theaters do still exist mm. that you can, um, of the historical variety, obviously, mm -hmm. operating theaters do exist. I couldn't find like a really comprehensive list of them, but I did manage to find a couple of places that you could check out. There is the old operating theater in London, which is the oldest surviving one, I believe, in all of Europe, which is interesting because it didn't open until 1822. So it's also kind of a late bloomer. So I'm not, yeah. a lot of them really just didn't make it to this next phase of, uh, you know, hospitals being rebuilt. It seems like one of the most obsolete things that would not lend itself to repurpose. Re Why would you need it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here in the States, we have Pennsylvania Hospital, which was co-founded by Ben Franklin in like mm -hmm. 1750, I think. And it is the oldest operating theater here mm. and one of the oldest in the world. It opened in 1804. So that was an early one. That theater saw some bad stuff, <laughs> like really bad stuff. We talked a little bit about uh, Jefferson Hospital. College, they, yeah. Theirs does no longer exist, but when it did exist, mm -hmm. it was actually referred to as the pit, which made me shudder. <laughs> yeah, not a great visual. Not a great visual, no. And there's some cool um, uh, depictions of it that mm. I'll make sure I, I send to you so we can post them. And then uh, there are a few others in the States. There's the Ether Dome in Boston. Great name. Uh, great. You can guess great. why it's named that. <laughs> <laughs> that is at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Cool. That's one of the ones I think that actually had chairs. And they're like weird little seats. So yeah, it's it's bizarre. And then there's the Sims Operating Theater, which is located here in NYC. That one uh, came into existence around 1892, and that would have been part of uh, Roosevelt Hospital, which of course is now Mount Sinai. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's as much as I could come across. There may be a lot more, but um, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> this is fascinating, and I am reminded listening to your mm. discussion about how much of medical science is in reaction to a crisis, whether it's mm. epidemiology with Jon Snow. Mm -hmm. Think about you know the American Civil War, really ratcheting things up in terms of field care and antiseptics. Absolutely. And, all of that. And, um, you know, even a case like if like a Phineas Gage or these reactionary, you know, kind of mm -hmm. bizarre cases, um, so much of those changes are in result to a focusing event where it, the old ways were so obviously outmoded. Yeah. And innovation comes in and changes the game. And it still takes a long time for those changes yeah. to become reality across the spectrum. You know? Yeah. And while, you know, we look at this as completely brutal, and difficult to comprehend, countless lives were changed mm -hmm. because of the essentially experimentation that was happening in these surgical theaters. Right. If there weren't people 
out there doing that work and other people watching and learning from the mistakes like Luke, you talked about in the Phineas Gage episode. That's right. The tightly packing of a wound. He probably went to an operating theater when he watched that being yeah. performed. Yeah. You know? Learning from Dr. Pancoast. Absolutely. Yeah. So he probably went to the pit to watch that surgery be done. It is very likely. And yeah. how that how that man died so that Gage might live. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, you know, when we when we think about this and we're quick to judge it as just being this grotesque, horrible thing, it, yes. it still is important. It's not like gladiatorial games. It's, it's no. serving a very important function. <laughs> and we can laugh about the quackishness of like drugs or whatever. But for the most part, sure. 19th century, people took oaths. They're essentially there to do good. Um, it's just the methods are so foreign to us. Um, they're just they're just throwing stuff to the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's you know, for as much as the United States is behind on universal health care, to your point about charity work, yeah, and the privilege of health care, it's a very new thing in terms of the healthcare system. Absolutely. Flawed as it is, because yeah. again, it's a patchwork system. It's a very new human right that we are discovering. Yeah, I mean, hospitals were a place you went to die, and that's how yeah. they were stigmatized for a really long time. Yeah. So to be able to have hospitals be a safe place and that and it is still not so in some third world countries. A hospital is still a place where you will die. Yes. But we are privileged in that we have these sterilized operating rooms. Yeah, and wrong, <laughs> wrongful death, early death has always been a tragedy, but yeah. it was so much less avoidable in antiquity and up until the 20th century really. Truly. Yeah. And getting better all the time. So all the thanks, time. Thanks, doctors. God, we love you. Amazing. You guys amazing. are the best. What you do, what you put yourselves through emotionally, mentally, people in the medical field are amazing. You have all yeah. my admiration. Truly, I could not do what you do. So thank you for that. Amen. These past few episodes have been just really nasty. <laughs> so bodies think, and oddities. Yes. Ooh, bodies and oddities. This has been a rough ride. I hope we didn't lose a bunch of people because <laughs> of how gross it's been around here lately. <laughs> but, um, well, I think it's coming to an end. Yes. Luke, I was going to say with your consent, I think we're going to be <laughs> taking a little hiatus from bods for a bit yeah for sure um, we have a couple of more relaxed episodes coming up that i that are going to be really fun and really silly so Agreed. uh yeah, that's it for me for today. Folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow us on Instagram and TikTok at the Morbid Museum. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.